Welcome to Surfcast. Thank you for joining us today. My guest is Eric Gilbert. Eric and his wife were born and raised in South Central Kentucky. They have two children, Dawson and Natalie. Eric has a heart for rural communities and has been in full-time ministry for over 20 years. He now serves as the founding and the pastor of Three Trees Church. He and his wife, Mandy, lead Curation Committee, which specializes in leadership development, staff structuring, and church growth strategies. Their church, Three Trees, started off as a small converted truck top restaurant to a home for over 3,000 believers. I've been to his place. He and Mandy have been with me to Honduras. Eric is my dear friend, and we're glad to have him on Surfcast today. We'll be right back with this conversation with Pastor Eric Gilbert. Eric, welcome to Surfcast, man. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Dr. Lamb. Man, I'm blessed. It's good to see you, friend. Yeah, you know, you're looking good. We're not going to show the video to everybody else, but I mean, I'm, you freshly shaved, you know, you still got a beard, but you got all that gruffy stuff off. It looks good, man. Man, only the best for you. <laughs> only the best. You cracked me up. You cracked me up. <laughs> but one of these days I'll be clean shaven like you. Like I'll finally fully mature. And, uh, and you got that Marine look. You know, I wouldn't have shaved at all if it hadn't been for the Marine Corps because I don't really get any whiskers. But when I went through boot camp, I shave the skin off. And so now I do it just for the fun. So, uh, yeah, it works. Uh, hey, since we talked last, I'm loving the grandbaby life, man. You got kids, you got teenagers, but my wife and I loving the grandbaby life, man. You got to come, you got to come check them out sometime in East Tennessee. So. I think it's going to make you soft. It probably will. <laughs> It probably will. It's great. I just I, I live vicariously through you in so many ways. I see you. I see you running the marathon, and I'm like, thank you, thank you for doing that in my stead, Doctor Lamb. And then I see you out there with the big green egg and the stuff that you pull off your smoker does not look like the stuff that I pull off my smoker. So uh, when I grow up, it's official. Like I want to be William Lamb. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, set your goals higher, Eric. You won't be disappointed, man. So uh, it'd be awesome. <laughs> But uh, hey, Eric, we're glad you joined us today. You know, you're the first pastor in what I'm calling a pastor series where I'm calling in some friends that are pastors that I know are legit. Their work has been incredible. Um, they've done what they need to do in making differences in the kingdom work. And so we just want to have a conversation, you know, from a pastor's heart, but also um, we'll talk some about food. We'll talk some about hunting and fishing and riding around on the farm and things like that. But more importantly, I want to hear from your heart today about, um, you know, really the idea of ministry, because we have a lot of students that will listen to us. We have about, uh, what is it now, Luke, maybe something like 15 countries or something, you know, that we're getting, getting traction in. I don't know exactly, but, you know, we know that we have pastors that are going to be listening to this interview. And, and uh, so we want to talk really on a kind of a pastor's heart, you know, from you. So before I do that, Give us a little um, snapshot on who Eric and Mandy are. And, you know, 20 years in the ministry, you started this church. How did you get to where you are today? And uh, let's kind of get a little intro on who Eric is and, and what Three Trees is. Yeah, so um, it's, it's a cliche phrase, but it's very true for me. You know, the only drug problem I ever had is that my parents drugged me to church whether I wanted to go or not. Uh, in 19 years of living in my father's house, we only took one vacation, uh, and it was to a church camp meeting in Louisiana. 
Um, so I was, I was, even though my, my mom nor my dad were ever in full-time ministry, neither of them were preachers, um, anything of that nature. Like I was just raised in an environment where you put God first. Um, and we were constantly in different church services, revival services, things like that. And so I think it just kind of lit a fire in me at a young age to want to have a, a deeper relationship with God. And so by the time I was 12 years old, I knew that someday I was going to preach the gospel. But in my teenage years, I didn't know exactly how to make sense of that. I felt like I kind of consciously ran from God uh, the next six years of my life. I was 18 years old. Um, I was on the, the Cumberland Parkway. I had a Damascus Road experience. Mile marker 82, pulled my car over. Like, God, whatever you want from me, I'll give you the rest of my life. Two weeks later, uh, having grown up in a small country church, um, I came with a little bit of an unexpected privilege in that two weeks after that Damascus Road experience, I preached my first sermon. And uh, I don't know, God, God kind of graced me, and we, we took off from there. So from the time I was 18 until today at age 41, I've, I've delivered over 7,000 messages and had the chance to travel quite a bit. Uh, my wife was my high school sweetheart. Uh, we actually got married the same year that we planted the church, uh, which was the year 2000. So uh, we're in our 21st year of pastoral ministry. And in December, um, it'll be our 21st wedding anniversary. We got two kids. Uh, my daughter is 16. Um, she's a uh, an entrepreneur. And we're very, very, very pleased with the development that she's made in that regard, uh, especially the money that she's making. God bless her. I feel like she's my retirement plan. There you go. Um, and my <laughs> that's right. And my son is uh he's 14. Uh he's in the eighth grade and um looks like he's you know gonna be playing varsity this year in basketball. So um I live vicariously through him as a basketball player. There you go. <laughs> you know why you have multiple kids, man? Because at least one of them is gonna feel compelled to take care of you, Eric. So uh amen. I believe that in Jesus' name. That's that's where I'm at. I'm gonna try to get two to. I'm gonna try to get two to agree. Two to agree and touch my elderly care program in Jesus' name. That'd be great, man. That would be great. So, so, so when I got to thinking about this interview, I get this image, and you know me. You know I get these images in my mind. I get word pictures a lot. You know, and just about anywhere you go these days, any restaurant, any building, any commercial place, you know. Um, there's a what they call an AED, which is a machine that hangs on the wall, and basically. You know, this AED is a portable life-saving device. So if somebody is having some kind of cardiac arrest, he can come off the wall, you know, and they use that to help, you know, bring um, care to that particular person. So using that acronym, Eric, I want to I want to talk about um, ministry. I want to talk about pastoral care. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about what you've done over the years, what you've seen using that kind of image that that anybody in the ministry today you know, um, an AED is critical for them because they're going to have situations and circumstances that are beyond their control. They're going to need, you know, a lot of care from time to time. So let's talk about using those three letters, A for accountability. We'll talk about endurance. You know, you, uh, you may run a marathon with me one day. I don't know. You endure pretty well in the ministry. And I want to talk about devotional life and kind of unpack that. So let's talk about accountability. Um, why does that matter? What does it look like? And um, why is it important? Well, you know, at a, at a young age, um, I happened to be in a, in a tribe that put a lot of emphasis on that. 
and at a, at a really young age, you know, I was taught that the Old Testament before God went into 450 years of silence clearly stated that the hearts of the fathers would be turned to the hearts of the children and the hearts of the children will be turned to the hearts of the fathers. And that that um, had as much of a spiritual connotation as it did a physical connotation. And so um, it was not just that, you know, some spiritual father was going to turn his heart towards you, but that you as a child had to, a spiritual child wanting to be developed, wanting to be matured, had to turn your heart towards the father and um, that there was a real benefit of being able to surround yourself with gray hair. And so by the time I was 18, uh, I had sought out multiple fathers in the faith and they're not easy to find because according to Paul, there are many teachers, but there are a few fathers. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I sought out, you know, uh, spiritual fathers, if you will, who would help to really put some principles in me uh, to not become a statistic and to not, you know, be a repeat of so many of the things that we've seen that have happened that have brought reproach to the name of Jesus and reproach to the church. And um, so <clears throat> I think without accountability, um, we really can bring a, a discreditation to <laughs> everything that we claim to stand for. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't just need a sin management program. Mm -hmm. I think that's what accountability becomes sometimes is, you know, we just keep repeating the same cycle, even though we confess. I mean, scripture says, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. And, and so I think when you're confessing to someone that you're accountable to, that uh, there ultimately should become an element of healing and restoration as a result of that. And um, I, I mean, I, 21 years in, I mean, I, I wouldn't still... I wouldn't still be here without the accountability of fathers who called me out and not only affirmed me, but corrected me. Hmm. Um, not always just about some kind of private scene you're wrestling with, but sometimes about your attitude and uh, what to say and what not to say. And, um, so I think that accountability is not something that you run from. I think it's something that we ought to run to. There's, there's safety in it. Um, I'll share this. We, we share a mutual friend in the Wilson family. Um, and, you know, Alva Wilson had a spiritual father type role in your life, had a spiritual father type role in my life. That's how we actually met each other. Thank God. Um, but I went one time to see Alva. And when I, when I went in to meet with him, he was delayed in another meeting and his wife who, you know, sister Joyce, uh, if they were likened under the Holy Spirit, he would have been the comfort and she would have been the fire. Exactly. Um, and she such a strong woman, such a strong, you know, motherly type figure. I always thought she reminded me kind of like a mother hen type. And she brought me over here and sat me down. She said, I know you're here to see my husband, but I'm going to talk to you for a minute. Yeah. And she said, what you may not know is that early in Alba's ministry, uh, he had a failure and it set him back. It set him back years. Um, and she said, but if he'd have known what I'm about to tell you, that would have never happened. Wow. And she said, you got it. She said, when it comes to uh, accountability in regards to sexual purity, she said, you got to know whether you're David, Ahab, Samson or Joseph. Wow. And she walked me through that biblically. And she wow. said, some people, some men are a Joseph and Joseph, um, he he struggles with Potiphar's wife because Potiphar's wife, according to scripture, had longing eyes for him. Mm -hmm. So when he followed her into the bedroom, yes, he may have even been her employee, but he knew what she wanted when he when he went in there, most likely, 
because he'd been playing the I game with her. Yeah. And he put himself in a situation to where that his credibility was destroyed because she had enough evidence um, to make the story believable, even though he had tried to stay innocent. And she said, so you got to know if you like to play the I game. She said, you got to know if you just like to know that you could if you wanted to, because it'll wind up putting you in a situation wow. um, that will bring that will discredit you. She said, you got to know if you're Samson. Samson's the strongest man on earth. He is an incredible warrior, but he would go into situations where that he just liked to lay into the lap of Delilah and be accepted and be affirmed. And those sweet nothings ultimately cost him his strength and his ministry. You got to know if you're uh, Ahab. Who you can build anything. You're, you're a builder in the kingdom. But Jezebel with their pillow talk will wind up seducing you into things that are against God. And yeah. then she obviously walked me through, uh, you know, the, the David and Bathsheba. You're supposed to be at war, but you're struggling with voyeurism. You're over here looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. She likened it under pornography uh, or even, you know, the attempt of somebody exposing themselves to you and you not being able to handle that. What do you do? And she wasn't just trying to throw women under the bus. She was saying from a biblical standpoint, sure. there are some things about men specifically. And you're a man, so you've got to figure out what you struggle with if the enemy tried to show up yeah. and bring your ministry down. And she told me on the, you said, you got a two hour ride home. When you get home, you're going to go in, you're going to sit down at the kitchen table and you're going to tell your wife, whether you're David whether you're Ahab, whether you're Samson, whether you're Joseph, and then your wife for the rest of your marriage is going to know who you're vulnerable to. So when she sees Bathsheba walk in, she will have her at hello. When she sees Jezebel walk in and she'll cover your blind spots and she'll help keep you safe. And so my wife and I put that in uh, 15 years ago. And I can't tell you like how many times it's probably just helped keep me um, out of potential issues. So. Man, we, we could stop the podcast right there. That's incredible. That's incredible. Kudos to Joyce. Changed my life. You know, yeah. 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 You, you mentioned two points about accountability that I think are important. One is calling out a brother. And the second one is affirmation. You know, a lot of times I think that the call out, you know, we, we may not do that early enough. So then we have to deal with the fallout of calling out a brother who we could have maybe helped prevent like Joyce did with you. Um, but let's talk about the affirmation piece. Why is that important? And what's that really look like? Because affirmation is more than just, you know, hey, that was really good. You did a great job. But it's identifying something in somebody else that maybe they haven't identified themselves. So how does affirmation play out its role in accountability? Because you're really good at that. I've seen you do that with your team. Um, talk about affirmation for a minute, Eric. Well, man, thank you for saying I'm good at it because I feel like I'm not. Um, I, I, I have found that we give the least of the thing that we want the most. Mm. Um, and so if you if you struggle to give a compliment, it's probably because you really like to receive a compliment and you tend to store those up for yourself rather than share them. Mm -hmm. And so I was I was raised in a, in a home uh, with an incredible father. Uh, who taught me how to pray, taught me how to fast, taught me how to study God's word. However, my father would never hesitate to point out the thing that you were doing wrong. And so I remember um, I applied for three scholarships when I graduated high school. I got two of them. We did not talk about the two that I got. We talked about the one that I didn't get. And one day I asked my dad, I'm like, why, why do you never like tell me good job for what I did right? And he said to me, he said, you know, to do right, 
I tell you what you're doing wrong so you can fix it. Mm. And so when I went into ministry, I, that was the pattern of authority I had seen. And so it was what I exemplified. So I could walk into a room where people had been preparing for an event, preparing for a conference for eight hours, 10 hours or more. And I would not see any of the hard work they had put in. All I could see was the poster that was hanging crooked, the, the one misspelling, in, you know, buried in the publication somewhere. And I would start pointing out the critique. And I just started noticing it was crushing people um, and that, you know, great people were leaving my team. And then when you would do the exit interview with them, what you would discover, it was because, well, I just feel like nothing I do is ever good enough. Wow. And I started to, to realize that, you know, people really are desperate for affirmation. And I wasn't giving it because I also was desperate for it. And so I had, I had to start sowing the thing that I felt like maybe I most wanted to reap in my life. And so I, I read something by Mark Batterson one time. Uh, it really stuck out to me. It's some of the values that he lives by. Uh, I've actually stolen this one and applied it to my own life. And that is catch people doing things right. Mm -hmm. Catch people doing things right. We're always trying to catch people doing things wrong, but catch people doing things right. And if you got something good to say to somebody, like, don't hold that back. That may vary. We, we all think about the Holy Spirit speaking to our conscience through convicting us not to do something. But what about the Holy Spirit speaking through our conscience, convincing us to do something? Wow. And so I, I, I just think sometimes when you get that, oh, man, that person needs a good job or that person needs an attaboy or that person needs a slap on the back or that person needs to be affirmed, even through your social media feed. Just do it. Just yeah. do it. Just bless the person. Man, that's awesome stuff, you know, and I think that, again, knowing how you live that out, you know, it, it's worth asking the question. Let's talk one more moment about accountability and the framework of teams, and then we'll move on to when you're going to run a marathon with me. But uh, let's no, talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fail in accountability on that side. <laughs> how, you talk about eating ribs or some pulled pork, I'm all in. We'll do that. Um, Eric, you know, how do, how do you build accountability with your team? And then like in particular, making decisions, right? What's your process for, for making decisions? I mean, you can't get to three campuses, multiple thousand people, you know, changing the world givers at the level you guys are, if you don't do something right. And so how have you developed this idea of accountability with your team for the pastor that's listening to this, that doesn't really have that in place? And then how, how have you seen that produce the benefits that you guys are enjoying um, with God's favor in your work? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, so, so John Maxwell, you know, probably the premier voice in the realm of leadership in the world today, uh, definitely in Christian circles. And, you know, he talks about the fact that, you know, leadership is influenced. But when you really put the, the full gamut together of everything he has said about leadership and even other great uh, commentators on that subject. I believe that that true leadership is a threefold cord. Um, and if you'll put the three folds together, if you'll weave them together, it creates something that cannot be broken. So, okay, let's start with the understanding. Leadership is definitely influence, but also leadership uh, is communication. If you don't communicate, you're not leading. But I think there's a third element to that, that leadership is the cadence of accountability. And so I really kind of came to those three chords by reading guys like Maxwell and others in that I don't think you can fully lead if you're not creating 
a cadence of accountability. And you as a military guy, like I'm sure that word cadence kind of means more to you than a lot of other people because you have the military background for it. Um, but when I think about creating a, a cadence of accountability, even when we do a staff meeting, we have no meetings without an action item. We assign no action items without a deadline. And there is to be no deadline arrived at without a circle back hmm. by the supervisor or the department head. Right. Um, so even in our staff meetings, we're trying to create a cadence. Okay. We've had, we've had the meeting and we've had the action item and now, and I think that's probably a Michael Hyatt thing, if I'm not mistaken, that's where we originally got that from. Um, but it works really well for us. But then, you know, other things that you could gather from Maxwell are things like anything. People do not do what you expect. They do what you inspect. Yeah. And so um, I think an element of accountability is that you have to go and inspect what you have expected. But if you have not clearly defined the expectation, you cannot be overly harsh regardless of what you find in your inspection. Oh, um, and so that, that comes from a great action item assignment, comes from a great expe expectation being defined. Um, so those are things that have worked for us. And I constantly tell our team, you know, excellence creates trust. Mm -hmm. And if it, so, like, if you take somebody and you, you put them into an environment that's messy, you put them into an environment that's not well kept. You, you put them into an environment that has not been held accountable for things being in order or being stewarded well. Immediately, people stop trusting that organization or that entity uh, because you start to wonder, well, if it's out of order out here where everybody can see, how much more is it out of order out there where people can't see? Mm -hmm. And so uh, we just learned that excellence creates trust. And when Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think that the, uh, the angelic choirs sing out the key. I don't think that there's gum on the golden streets of heaven. Uh, I don't think that things in heaven are done without excellence or out of order. So right. even when we're trying to bring heaven to earth, there's an expectation and an element of, of excellence. So we don't hesitate to hold people accountable and we function in an extremely high feedback environment. Like there's a difference between criticism and feedback. Um, and so we just really try to let people know, like we're going to give you some feedback in realm to the expectation action item, et cetera, that we've set and we're striving for excellence. Man, that's good stuff. Again, we can stop the podcast right there, but we're not going to because we uh, have a few more things to talk about. We haven't run the marathon yet. There you go. There you go. Let's talk about the marathon. Let's talk about endurance. You know, um, I am a marathon runner and I'm thankful to get back after a hard stand. I'm probably going to try to do a marathon. If not this late fourth quarter of this year, I'll do one sometime in 2022. But um, man, you've ran a marathon over 20 years in the ministry. You know, you've been at the same place, you know, exceptional growth, phenomenal discipleship stories, God's favor, um, adhering to your own advice and accountability. What lessons have you learned about yourself through this act of endurance and staying at the same place to get through what God's season was for that time while anticipating a new season that God could build in you? Because a lot of times ministers, you know, for whatever reason, and we know that some um, structural systems and some church systems and structures structures will move people from time to time, but 
staying somewhere and and just man grinding through it um what what lessons have you learned about yourself and how are you doing that i don't know i've never been good at quitting dr lamb i i think um um it's i i just hate the feeling of failure and sometimes i feel like when we quit um it puts us in that place of uh i guess i could say it this way a lot of people didn't fail they just quit and there is something to be said for removing the quit option yeah uh, but when it comes to me uh and just thinking about pastors and ministers a lot of guys uh you know, quit because they're burned out uh, and they stop enduring because they are burned out. Uh, for me, I'm never more susceptible to burnout than when I'm bored. And so I, I always try to have periods of time where I get alone with the Lord. You know, Jesus said he went to the father and he didn't do anything that he didn't see of the father. And so if you can create space to get along with the Lord, you know, preferably once a week, but uh, at least two or three days a month and get a download. Uh, it kind of gives you a, a vision, if you will. And when I've got that vision, I feel like I can run through a troop and uh, I can, I, you know, I can leap over, leap over a wall. Um, my dad, when I was just getting started, our church got off to a very, very slow start. Um, and my dad is not a man of many words and he's definitely not an overly emotional guy. Uh, but one day he sent me a card in the mail and, uh, I went out, opened up the card and, and, uh, realized it was from my father. And on the front, it had this guy that was climbing a mountain. Um, and it, it basically said when the going seems tough and then you open up the card and it says, just imagine what the view is going to be like from the top. Wow. And so many times in 21 years, like I've just envisioned that of, of like, the harder it seems. And so I'll give you one final thing. When, when I was, um, when I was maybe two to three years in to trying to plant three trees, we had started with six people. Uh, we were in a converted truck stop restaurant. Uh, we two years in only have about 30 people, but I was still traveling and preaching in much larger venues and churches. And one night I got a phone call to take a church, um, that had about 500 people. And I was immediately like, yes, get me out of here. Um, but then I, that night I went to bed and I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw two men that were on top of a hillside. And I realized that they were dressed like something you might envision from Russell Crowe in the Gladiator. And I realized they were the same guy, but they had gotten to the top of that hill two totally different ways. And all along the hillside were dead men, dead soldiers. And this one guy standing here and his, his eyes cut and his sword is out and it's got dents and it's got dings and it's dripping blood. Um, and then the other guy is standing there and his sword is still in his sheath. He looks like he's unscathed, like he's never been touched. I woke up and I felt like, you know, the Lord was trying to show me something. God, what are you trying to get me to see? And the Lord asked me, when the next attack comes, which one do you think will be able to keep the ground? Wow. And I realized, man, if you don't fight your way to the top and somebody gives you something, you probably won't be able to keep it when the attack comes anyway. Mm -hmm. So why not just learn how to fight on the way up? 
And then once you achieve something or you gain something of significance, people are going to have a heck of a time trying to take it away from you because you know how to fight. There you go. Go ahead. So I really loved the point you brought out with just having to look at the overview of everything before you start getting into the intricate parts of your life. And I, with that, I almost want to ask, you know, you have the challenges with becoming a self-motivated person, becoming persistent with that, like you said, creating a steady pace, but Mm -hmm. also getting to that finish line or what the overall view looks like. So how do you balance that with the challenging parts of ministry? What does it look like to you when you're carrying that into also your ministry, the people you're working around and also keeping that same, I want to say like mindset and steady pace with everyone that you're working with. Yeah. Andy Stanley in his book, Visioneering gives a a beautiful analogy of that. He said, if you send people out to put dirt in bags, they're going to quit pretty quickly Mm -hmm. because nobody enjoys shoveling dirt. However, if you send people out and you tell them to put dirt in bags because we're going to build a levee that is going to save this city from an oncoming hurricane, you can get entire communities motivated behind it. And so uh, literally, we just had a vision night in our church two weeks ago. And that was one of the things that I was reminding them of. When you're, when you're in kids' church and you're struggling to get volunteers and you feel like you're just babysitting everybody else's kid, or you're in what we would call baby spot, the nursery, and you're just changing diapers. Or when you're in worship ministry and you're showing up early and you're leaving late and nobody even seems like they care, like it can feel like you're just putting dirt in bags. But when you realize that you are saving a city, that yeah. changes everything. And yeah. so you just, I think you just have to keep reminding everybody else, starting with yourself, that we're not putting dirt in bags. We're saving a city, we're building a levy. And uh, it can seem really mundane to, you know, go into the office day after day, hold everybody accountable and keep all the systems moving forward. But when you realize we're saving a city, you, you get up every day with a, a brand new opinion of that shovel. That yeah. shovels the difference between life and death. So, Good stuff, Eric. You know, accountability in place, endurance as a discipline and not a not, or as a lifestyle and not a, you know, event. Um, and then let's talk about this idea of devotional life, you know, your personal devotional life a little bit. Um, you told me a story many years ago about when you had the weed eat road frontage. Now, I'll send you a text and a picture every once in a while when I'm weed eating the thousand foot of road frontage at my own house. And when I send you that picture, sweating and just, you know, dying out there at 57 years old, it means something to us because I will say to you, I'm praying for you and your dad. You told me a story about your dad and you weed eating and how that built within you a servant heart and a compassionate heart. We know that part of the devoted life is a life of service, especially in your church blitzes its cities often, you know, with service. Talk about service, what does that mean to you? And and why is that really important for a pastor who is listening to this today, who doesn't know how to do that? Um, I, I think so. I, I heard you, I heard you talking about, I'm sorry, I apologize for the, whatever happened with the feed, but um, I understood you to be asking about my dad making me weedy a mile of road frontage on the farm. Am I with you? Yeah. You know, and I'll send you a picture every once in a while when I weed eat my own thousand foot of road frontage and I'll tell you, I'm praying for you and your dad, you know, talk about why that mattered to you in the acts of service and how you've built a church that serves others well as part of a devoted life. 
you know, um, I used to get really upset with my dad <laughs> when he would send me when he would send me out there with that uh, that weed eater and uh, had my monthly obligation to weed eat right at a mile of fence and uh, and road. This was twenty years uh, ago. This was twenty five years ago, right? So there, it wasn't like the big commercial weed eaters now. Oh no, it was a little home light. <laughs> um, it was a little home light weed eater that was just one step above electric and it wouldn't run right. And I was only allowed a certain amount of string. And if I, so that meant if I hit the, the metal post too many times, uh, it would keep cutting the string and I would run out of string. And then I had to move to taking like one of those old fashioned thresher things like a oh. grim reaper uses or whatever. I don't even know what they're oh. called, but um, yeah. So I, I mean, I was just, I was just taught work hard. Um, and sometimes I don't even think my dad taught me to work smart. I think he taught me to work, work hard. And he told me, he taught me to take pride and calluses and, and blisters. And so I kind of came into, uh, uh, and I'm actually now trying to install that in my 14 year old, we've got some fence and I sent him out there with the weed eater. And the other day he stopped me and he said, Hey dad, you know, that thing they got in the house where you don't have to vacuum the floors and it just like sweeps everything. He said, don't you think by the time I'm your age, they'll have that with GPS tracking for the yard and the field and the fences. And Way I'm like, go, I don't care if they do it. I'm going to teach you how to get some calluses, boy. I used to walk to school four miles in the snow. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I just, I, it was just built in me. Uh, my dad worked uh, three jobs when he was getting started. Uh, my dad, when he first got uh, employed with who he would ultimately retire with, uh, it was the Department of Transportation in the state of Kentucky. He didn't have any political networking and he come from the wrong side of the tracks. The only way he could get hired is they were trying to build a parkway, a, a parkway, by the way, later where I would have a Damascus Road experience. And they needed big farm boys who could pack five gallon buckets to concrete. Wow. And that is how he that's how he got hired was packing five gallon buckets of concrete because they couldn't find anybody else to do it all day, every day. And by the time he finished, you know, he was um, he was in charge of 10 counties for roadside beautification as a supervisor and foreman. And so I just saw that. And so it was just in me, you know, and, and then I was taught at a young age. My mama used to get my mama was my Sunday school teacher and she would take out the little felt board things. And uh, this generation has no idea what they missed out on with the felt boards. There and they would know. lay the little Bible characters on the felt board. And they would move. She would move people across. And I remember over and over again seeing like the greatest among you must become servant. You must become the washer of feet if you're ever going to do anything of significance. And so I'm a, I'm a nuts and bolts guy, not just in system, but just in I like to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty and. Um, I think it's just in my, my DNA. So I don't know if I answered your question. Well, I know we wrestled with the feed there a little bit, but that's, uh, that's how I wound up just having it built into me to be a blue collar guy. You know, in fact, I know a lot more about farming than I do ranching. And there's, there's times when I think I, I struggle a little bit as a pastor of not necessarily wanting to micromanage, but I just like to get my hands dirty sure. and, and, and get right in the middle of it. So Right. Um, let's let's um, let's kind of wrap this this last section up on this devoted life, you know, with lessons that you've learned about your church through this idea of, um, you know, we're in a pandemic that's kind of been wrecking everybody's world. Right. So 
What have you learned about yourself as you guys have stayed in the fray, done well, continued to serve, made a difference? You know, um, what, what are your wins over this last year, last two years? I think probably one of the greatest discoveries that I had was how vulnerable debt makes you when something like a pandemic begins to take place. When the pandemic started, everybody's freaking out and they don't know what they want to believe in, what they want to support. They don't know if they're going to have money to, you know, go buy the essentials. And so uh, I'm sure people meant well, but, you know, people just stopped giving. Um, And during the first few weeks of the pandemic. Now, uh, we uh, I, I had a mentor in my life and he encouraged me to read Extreme Ownership, which is a book written by Great Navy book. SEALs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so those Navy SEALs, they really break down um, that when you go into a crisis mode or when you go into warfare, you got to get really straight about what you're going to focus on. And one of the things that they talk about is prioritize and execute. And so this mentor put it in my heart that, you know, you need to prioritize what are the most important things. And then you need to focus on executing those priorities. And so we as a church, we just decided we were going to do three things. We were going to seek the lost. We were going to make disciples and we were going to meet needs. And so going into the first few weeks, you know, I don't even know if it was people didn't know how to give. We did at that time. We didn't have a ton of digital givers because we're in a rural area. I think sometimes that stuff's a little bit behind. Uh, Maybe they didn't know where to mail it. Maybe they didn't know where to send it. But when we got clear, we're going to seek the lost. We're going to make disciples. We're going to meet needs. And then at that point, it, uh, you know, the giving uh, not only started to pick up again, but it started to catch itself up. Right. And we were about uh, eight, eight, nine months in. And, you know, I just continued to dwell on the fact that, man, I've never felt more vulnerable than I did when this pandemic hit. And one of the main reasons for that was because of the debt load that we were packing on our facilities. And you were going through government orders, different things like that. And so we not, we went with a fourth thing. So we're going to seek the loss. We're going to make disciples. We're going to meet needs. And fourthly, we're going to get out of debt. Mm-hmm. And the moment that we got really focused on that, I brought all the staff in, put them in a room, drew it out on the whiteboard. Here's how we can get out of debt. It's going to be hard for you guys. Uh, many of you are going to have to take on two and three jobs uh, here at the church. If, if somebody leaves the staff, we're not going to be replacing that person. We're going to take that as a sign that we need to apply their salary towards principal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, in the so between December of 2020 and August of uh, 2021, we we had got we had paid almost two million dollars in wow. debt, awesome. and I hope I have those numbers correct because it kind of some of it kind of started back in April, yeah. uh, but by but now by August of 2021, having started the pandemic with like 2.8 million dollars debt. 18 months in, we've gotten it down uh, to $2 million debt. So on Sept- in September, I went before the church and I, I kind of gave them a vision for this is not a time to retract. This is a time to expand. And I don't think we can do that with any remaining debt. And uh, I don't think it's God's will for our church to move forward with debt. And on a Wednesday night, we put that before them and uh, let them know, hey, we're $500,000 away from being out of debt. And I believe that in the month of September, we can totally alleviate that. And so I'm sitting here today with commitments on the table that by September the 30th, we will be a debt-free church. Um, and, and so, yeah, amen. Praise God. That go. feels like running a marathon right there, but um, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, so I think to, to summarize all of that, when, when the pandemic started, we learned we had to prioritize and execute. And then we had to clearly communicate those priorities 
so that our team could execute. Um, and they needed to be simple rather than complex. Uh, and it was like the more clear we became with the vision, the more clear our people became with the provision. Yeah. And uh, I feel like we're feel like we're standing in a miracle right now. Um, so we just got to go get a download, uh, sync up to it and, and bring it back to the people. Good stuff. So accountability, um, endurance, devoted lifestyle, great lessons. As we close today, Jocelyn has a couple of quick bonus questions for you that I think you'll like. Oh, my. All right. You mentioned that um, you do like grilling with the big green egg. I've never heard of that. Yeah. What is the last meal you cooked on your big green egg? Just a random. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I fixed uh, trying, trying to follow in the footsteps of my mentor, <laughs> Dr. William Lamb, in the realm of smoking incredible barbecue. I tried a Boston butt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've got a busted fire ring right now um, and I just well, I just got a new one in uh, big, big green egg uh, sent me one. It's still under warranty and uh, it went miserable. It was horrible. My kids <laughs> wouldn't even eat it. My wife looked at it and she's like, what did you do wrong? And I'm like, I, I have I have no I have no clue. But <laughs> Slick Willie didn't help me out this time. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Question number two. What do you do for fun? Uh, I, I love to trout fish. Um, I, I live uh, on the Cumberland river. Um, it's got one of the best, uh, trout fishing streams anywhere, you know, east of the Mississippi river. And, um, some of those, there's about a five mile section of tailwaters there where there's some trophy trout. And every time I get a chance, I love to go try to chase them. So <laughs> good stuff. Awesome. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Last closing thoughts for pastors or students or anybody listening to this episode, man, close us out. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for the honor of being here. It's always great to see you. Always great to connect. Uh, I love you much, man. Uh, I, I think um, when it, when it comes down, when it, you're, you're only as good as your prayer life. Yeah. And so, so many times people, they want to focus on all the steps to this and keys to that and do this, don't do that. And, you know, they want to read and research the leadership gurus and you know, I do all of those things and there's nothing against those things. Uh, but if you don't have a direct connection with God, it's all in vain. I, I told this to my staff yesterday. We were sitting through so at the systematic meeting of how to enhance our process of adding volunteers. And I, I pointed out to them, yes, this system will work. And yes, this idea is probably going to be good for us. And yes, putting in that initiative is going to have a positive effect. However, Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that there would be laborers in the harvest. So even when it comes down to something like leading an organization where you need volunteers, get your system, get your process, launch your initiative, but don't forget to pray. Um, so I think, you know, we're only as good as our prayer life. And if a man is only as good as his questions, then the number one personality I want to be asking questions to is the Holy Spirit. Wow. Good stuff, Eric. Thank you for joining us today. Guys, as always, let me remind you, you're made for more. You can make a difference. You can make an impact on somebody else's life. Great lessons from our friend, Pastor Eric. If you want to reach out to him, you can reach him at ericgilbert.org. And uh, Jocelyn, kudos on your first co-host with me. Thank you for- uh, You did great. She did great, Eric. She did great. <laughs> She'll be around for a while. So, uh, all Absolutely. right. Till next time, you guys take care and think about it. Have a great day.
Thanks for tuning in to Surfcast with Dr. William Lamb. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Surfcast to stay updated on special guests and future episodes.